this morning, I want to, this is something that the Lord put on my heart. Um, as we come together as a body, last week we talked about seeing and having our eyes open to see God properly. And until we see Him properly, we can't be His spokesman. And so we've got to see God in all of His glory. Um, today the topic is sit. And this has to do with our position uh, where we're at in Christ. There's a story of two, uh, two paratroopers. They were medics in World War II. And before the Normandy invasion uh, on Omaha Beach, uh, these guys were dropped off uh, the night before. And they kind of veered off course and, and dropped in, in kind of really the wrong place. But they happened to get put in the right place in the sense that there was a fierce battle brewing between the Germans and the Allied forces. So these two medics that were there began to, um, the only building they could find that would work as a, as a place to, to treat wounded soldiers, and they treated both the German and the Allied forces, was a 700-year-old church. And so in this church, they used the pews for makeshift beds. And they were running in, grabbing those who were injured and bringing them in. And they were treating them. After the war was over, the pews were completely bloodstained. And so when the church came back into it, they thought, well, let's refinish these pews and get the church back up to where uh, we need to get it and get back into normal life. But as they thought about it, they said, wait a second, this blood on those pews is the legacy that this place was a place where people were saved and people were touched and people were uh, being ministered to. So instead of resurfacing the pews, they varnished over the blood in order to keep it as a statement of the legacy that they were a life-saving entity and not just a museum for people to sit around and think that everything is okay and to gloss over the war of that was the reality in which they experienced. See, many times I think we're sitting in the pews and we're bleeding all over the place. But I want you to know that the church is to be a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. So if you're looking for a bust of yourself to put yourself up and it be about you, you're going to miss out. But if you're in a chair and you're bleeding today, if you're in a chair and you're hurting and you feel like you're bleeding out everywhere and you're wondering, how in the world am I going to make it? Am I going to be okay? You just sit there for a second and I'm going to tell you what God's done for you and you're going to begin to begin to feel healing in your life and healing in your body. You're going to begin to feel uh, loved again, all the things that seem to be uh, spun out of control, you're going to begin to feel those things be reconnected. And it's okay to bleed out on those pews because when you're bleeding out on those pews, guess what? We're not going to cover it up. We're not going to say you're not welcome here. We're going to say that's just our role in your life right now is to bring healing to an area that's broken because that's what Jesus is all about. I was told that uh, the mind can only handle what the seat can endure and so I got a lot of faith in your seat this morning amen amen the topic sit and this has to do with our position in Christ did you know that you were born into a chair you were born into a position with God in other words you have an inheritance 
because of what Christ has done, you are being brought into the reality of being a joint heir with Jesus. And I think what happens sometimes is we, we hear truth and we read the Bible and we receive it as truth, but we think that because we've shook our head yes to a truth that we've done our due diligence. But doctrine is an invitation to experience. In other words, truth invites us into a place where we can experience God. And then once we experience that truth, that truth and that experience begins to create a lifestyle. In other words, we don't hear truth just to fill up our minds. We hear truth in order to have an experience with that truth and in order for that truth to then create a lifestyle. In other words, God, many times when God gives us a promise, we visit there when God's calling us to live there and to show up there anytime we want. That's why when the worship music starts up, you don't have to prime up me or my wife, right? Like, we know that that experience that we've had with God means that that's an open door for lifestyle to me to live in a place of praise and worship where I can feel God's presence at any time when I begin to praise Him. Some of us live experience to experience because we've limited God unto a doctrine. We've limited Him unto a truth. But God isn't just a doctrine. He's a person. And He's calling us into relationship to begin to enjoy Him. So that we don't have to live experience to experience. Oh wow, good service today. And then we leave out. Then we get dry and stale again. And then three months later, woo, finally I needed that. And we live from experience to experience. But what we don't understand is God is inviting us into the place of lifestyle. That you don't just have to praise Him here. I can cut on praise and worship in my house. And I can begin to create an avenue of praise where God begins to dwell and show up. Because that's what God wants to do. He wants to have a relationship with you. God's not mad at you. He's not disappointed at you. He's not looking at you like, wow, I wish you would get it together and I'd show up more in your life. He's given you an open invitation in Jesus Christ to say, just show up and hang out with me. Thank you for those two hand claps. It might not get much better, so. See, all the way back to Genesis 1, when God creates the world, we see this image of sitting. God creates the, the, the world in, in six days, or six yoms, six period of times. And, and on the seventh day, it says He rested. The Hebrew word for rest there is Shavath, where we get the word Sabbath. But it has a word picture with it. And the word picture is that God is sitting down. Can somebody get me a chair? Justin, grab me a chair, man. I'm just gonna, we're just going to get real up in here. <laughs> Picture's worth a thousand words, they say. So, oh, and the hymnal fell out. My goodness, we need to get those out anyway. <laughs> I mean use them, not get rid of them. And so God sits down on the sixth day. He enters into rest on the seventh day, rather, and sits down. So that means Adam was created on the sixth day. So by the time Adam's ready to do his first act, 
God is already sitting down. So he doesn't tell Adam, go figure it out and put it together and start creating stuff. God says, I've already created everything you need. Go work. So God's saying, I've sat down. In other words, I'm not going anywhere. This is now sacred space that me and you through relationship will begin to dwell in and begin to, to begin to commune in. And through that, Adam, through this position that I've given you, through this, this chair that I, I'm sitting in and that I want you to sit down with me, through that place, you're going to do your work and you're going to be fruitful and you're going to multiply. So it's out of God rest that He calls Adam in to start working. A position of rest. See, what I begin to learn is that there's a lot of ancient creation narratives, and especially in Mesopotamia, uh, the kind of this cradle of civilization where everything seemed to have started. And the Bible has some different nuances to its creation narrative. That God creates everything with the spoken word. He speaks things into existence uh, that weren't there. A creation literature in other, uh, in other creation, ancient creation literature is, is that when they think of sacred space or a space where God dwells, is that in order for something to be in the image of God, only God could create other gods in the image of Himself. So in other words, humans were a lesser being. So that's why they would have idols set up in their temple. The reason they would have idols set up in their temple was not because they believed this thing that they made had any kind of power. It was to represent an image of God and that He was always with them. It was a reminder. It was a picture. But in God's creation narrative, guess who's made in the image of God? So God's like, don't worry about the idol. You are the express image of God, and you are my representative in the earth. In other words, when I want people to see me, I'll just have you step forward as my representative through relationship with me. You'll begin to imitate me in the earth. And we'll rule and reign through relationship. See, I think what's happened in the church is we've worked really hard to try to get people in the building. But we've not released people into the potential that God has created them to be. So we've got a bunch of sitters and not a lot of people that are in their position sitting with God and then doing great exploits out of that place of position. See, God rests after His completion of work. In the other ancient narratives of creation, the gods create people because they're tired of doing work. When our God, in our creation narrative, God creates people for relationships. Not because he's tired of them, but that he wants to share his love and glory with someone else and to bring them near and close where they might experience his goodness and his glory. In ancient creation literature that's not the Bible, uh, there's flood narratives as well. And the gods send the floods because they're so tired of the people making noise down there that they wipe them out. 
our creation literature, God sends a flood because sin has come in so rampantly that it separated Himself from His people. So our God shows a picture here that He's willing to do whatever it takes to remove separation between us and Him. See, God is all about relationship. He's all about relationship. Amen. The inability to, to find rest is rampant all around us. It's all around us. I heard a minister say one time, how can we lead our people beside the still waters and in green pastures if we've not been there ourselves? And I think everything in our society puts a precedence on hurriedness and franticness. I remember to hear the news, you had to be in front of a TV at like 5 o'clock and 10 o'clock. Now, while the news program's going on, there's a ticker with other information going on at the bottom. And then you're getting alerts on your phone. Oh, whoa. It's like as if instant information has overtaken meditation and uh, solitude and quietness and time with the Lord. And that's what the enemy would have us to believe. That if we stay busy, we're making an impact. When God says this, that if you want to experience public uh, success, get in the secret place, close the door, and then I will reward you openly. What God is saying is, is that relationship will always bring us into a place of more effectiveness when we are resting in God than when we're busy running around like a chicken with our head cut off. See, God is pulling us into the place of effectiveness, but we can't be effective until we've sat and heard and rested and took another breath to take another step into tomorrow. To rest would mean to sit down. The Bible is saying that God is sitting on His throne. He's not going anywhere. He's sitting and inviting us into that rest with Him. And that through that relationship, through that position, we would be effective and begin to walk. We always talk about our walks with God. Does anybody talk about the rest with God? Their time where they sit down and just be present with Him. Because that's what God's looking for. You know what He's looking for? A place to sit down. A place near you where He can sit down. The Bible repeatedly talks about a place where God is looking to make a name for Himself. That's why He creates the temple. A place for His name to dwell. That's why the Tower of Babel goes south. God comes down and it says they were trying to make a name for themselves. So in other words, they wanted God to come down bless their efforts so that they could carry on with their own agendas 
with God separately and their entity in and of itself. See, when we're trying to make a name for ourselves, we tend to just invite God in to bless our own agendas and not making a name for His self where we say, God, what is the agenda and where are we going from here? So after that reality in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel, we see God choosing a man named Abraham. And through this man, he begins to create a people. This man, Abraham, he makes a people. And then it turns into Moses leading the children of Israel. And the reason God calls the children of Israel out of slavery and bondage, do you know what it was for? He calls them out of the metropolis and into a wilderness in order to create worship. Some of you are disappointed about that, but if you'll start worshiping, you'll figure out what everybody's excited about. So, he builds a tabernacle. Isn't it just like God to give them supernatural favor in Egypt where the Egyptians are giving them gold and all their stuff? And then he brings them out into the desert where they have nowhere to spend it. Thanks, God. <laughs> but then in Genesis 25, verse 8, we've, or not Genesis, Exodus rather, Exodus 25, verse 8, we find out. God says, build me a house. Build me a place where we can meet together. And we can begin to restore relationship so that my name can be great in the earth again. Because God doesn't make His name great in the earth separate from His representatives on the earth. So He's looking for a place for His name to dwell. So if a people that will be open and humble and ready enough just to say, God, here we are, show up and lead us and direct us, He'll begin to make His name great in this city and in this earth. Again, the picture of the, the, the word uh, in the Psalms, where I think it's Psalm 66, where it says, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. That's what the mercy seat was that was in the Holy of Holies, in the, in the tabernacle and in the temple. It was considered the place where God's feet dwelt. It was the place, it was God's connection to the earth. It was the place to where His presence and His name dwelt. And so it's like God, what He lost in Eden through Adam's rebellion, He's trying to start the process to gain back. And gain back what? The earth? Yeah, that's part of it. Uh, nature? Yeah, that's part of it. But what is He really trying to gain back? Relationship with His people so that He can share Himself with others. God, being good and being loving and being supreme, only has one thing that He can give us that would be the best thing He could possibly give us. And do you know what that is? It is Himself. In other words, God is the treasure. If there was something better that God had, He would give it to you. Right? If there was something better, He would give it to you because that's how good He is. But God, being the supreme goodest, goodest, most good, 
I don't know. We'll just go with it. God being the goodest thing going, he has to give you himself. And this is the reality that drives humanity crazy. This drives humanity crazy. God, give me what I want and leave me alone. Give me what I want and leave me alone. And we live from crisis to crisis to crisis to crisis. But the reality is God said, I want to live with you. I want to dwell with you. I want to know you. I want you to know me. And from a place of rest and from a place of relationship, we can get some things done around here. But we can't get it done without relationship. Because that's how God set it up. That's why when we hear the great, uh, this is the, end of the verse that people talk about for repentance and revival, but we tend to not read on for why the reason God is calling for repentance. But in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 through 16, it says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, do you get that? Called by my name. You're the representative of his name in the earth. And my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. Verse 16, here it is. For now... I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. What is the heart of repentance? It's not just to merely restore your marriage. What's the heart of repentance? It's not merely just to get what you want or to find this or that. The heart of repentance is this, that God comes back into our lives and into our situations where we can have fellowship with Him and enjoy one another for all eternity. The whole idea of the Bible is for God to finally be able to sit down with His people. There comes a time where God's tired of chasing us around. And he wants to get a hold of us so he can sit down. And we'll sit down. And we can begin to enjoy fellowship with one another. That is God's end goal in chasing and finding you. So that you might have relationship with him. Spoiler alert. Like, I know we think God's up to some grand scheme of like making our life miserable. But here's the reality of it. He wants you to quit running so that he can have relationship with you. It's so simple. It's so simple. Now Moses gives us some more insight on this rest. Exodus 31, verse 17. He says this, It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. Now get this. And on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Okay, what's happening here? Is God getting tired on us? What's going on? Now here's what that word refreshed. Nefash, I believe, is the, is the Hebrew uh, pronunciation of it. But this is what it means. It means to take a breath. So what's God showing us here? He's shown us this. In six days, he creates the earth. The seventh, he rests and was refreshed. How did he create everything? 
So when he sat down and took another breath, he's getting ready to continue to create. Because you can't form more words until you take another breath. And the reason why some of us don't have any words is because we've not taken a breath. You ever seen somebody talk that hadn't took a breath? <laughs> you can't hear it? It's, it's the heart of God's name. Yahweh. Yod. Yeah, Yod. Is this, it's it's the, to the sound of breathing. That was the, the heart. yod hey vav hey. That was God's, that was breathing. It was Yod, hey, hey. I am that I am is the sound of God breathing. His name is a picture of breath. Yeah. Isn't that cool? Because this is how God wants Himself revealed as the breath of life. What's the first thing He does to Adam when He shapes him? So God was getting ready to take another breath. And guess who messed it up? See, we missed out on the second part of the creative work that God was wanting to do. And that was to create a salvation that would keep men bound to Him. See, we left before God could speak again. And this is what happens many times as we experience God and He's getting ready to take another breath in our life. And Satan knows it. And he says, oh, if i got to keep them discouraged, i got to make them think that they need to kill them. So i gotta, I got to pour. And, and he puts on this onslaught and then we get wiped so sideways and we thought, I thought God was in this. And we miss out because we hit the ejector button and we miss out on the creative breath of God that He was getting ready to speak over our life. Take a breath means to speak again. So this is where Jesus comes on to the scene. Where God transitioned from being in a location to being in a person. That's why Jesus is walking by the temple. He says, three days they tear it down, but it's going to get raised back up again. Or they're going to tear it down, and then in three days, they're going to raise it back up again. And the disciples, they're still in the mind of a location. It's taken 46 years to build the temple. How in the world are they going to tear that down and then in three days build back this grand structure? What Jesus was saying is, that is no longer the temple. I am now the meeting place of God where you will have your encounter. See, Jesus was the uh, eschatological shift into the kingdom of God, into inaugurated eschatology, which basically just means is He's the one that institutes the kingdom of God, a new dynamic, a new way of living and thinking. So that it went from a building or a structure and then it began to transfer into a person. In other words, that it would be relationship with this individual that would determine us meeting with God or not meeting with Him. That's why he says in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. 
Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, present tense, you will be also. Now that gets recited a lot in funeral ceremonies and, and that's, that's a good thing. It's to let us know that. But God went to prepare a place for us not for the sweet by and by, but for right here and for right now. That's why the Bible says that uh, this is eternal life, that you believe in Him and the one in whom He has sent. So in other words, that relationship becomes the place that initiates us into an avenue with God to be where He is so that we can be there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Got a golf match in here. Uh, verse 18. John 14, verse 18. And I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You will live, present tense, also. In that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. See, God is setting up this way through Jesus to bring us into a place of relationship. In the same chapter, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit or the Comforter to be with us and to dwell in us. So Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was all to accomplish relationship and to sit in sacred space with you. That is God's M.O. relationship. That He might know you. So it's like what Jesus did then becomes our reality. You with me? Somebody sleeping, just elbow them right there. They need this. They need this. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. If I'm not mistaken, I think that's right. For I have been... Thank you, Pat crucified with Christ so that I no longer live. Christ lives in me. Romans 6, I was buried with Him through baptism into death and I was raised as He was by the glory of the Father into a newness of life. Okay. So now, when I, by faith, apprehend Jesus and transfer my trust of my life over to Him, it's not just Jesus crucified. I was crucified with Christ and my old sinful nature with Him. When I was baptized, it was a symbol of burial. And when I come out of the water, it was as if I raised from the dead with Jesus as well. So it wasn't just something Jesus did. What Jesus did then gets transferred to me. And in a place of rest where I did nothing to deserve it, I am then crucified, buried, raised from the dead, and entering into a new life with Jesus. Yeah, that's good news. That's the position you're born into. Nothing you did to earn it. 
Nothing you did to deserve it. God's just that good. God's just that good. That's why I'm more than a conqueror. Why? Because I won a battle I didn't even fight. You've won a battle you didn't even fight. Jesus fought it for you. To get the spoils of something I didn't earn. Grace. Unmerited favor. But then we think, wait a second. It's not earned. I won't appreciate it. But that's a misunderstanding of grace. Because the only way I don't appreciate a free gift is when I begin an entitlement mentality and I think it's owed to me. That's when grace quits becoming grace because if I'm entitled, it's a payment. And it's something that I've earned and that I'm owed. But when it's true grace, gratefulness, and life change will always be there because grace is transformative. It's, it's transformative because it hits me in such a way that I know I didn't earn it. I know I couldn't deserve it. I know there was just no way. I could, and it hits me in such a way that I begin to step out into a reality that's creative and I begin to walk in a way that I wouldn't have otherwise. This is the story of both brothers in the story of the prodigal son. This is why both were lost. One was lost to reckless living, and that's the ones we typically say, yeah, you're lost. You're way out there, brother. <laughs> but do you notice, the younger brother comes home on his own will. Luke 15 is all about the lost coin, the lost sheep, right? prodigal son. It's all in Luke 15. And it's all about seeking something that's lost. Right? The woman loses the coin, sweeps the house. Oh, you know it. And she finds the coin. In an agrarian society where most people were poor, you swept the house and found the coin. Right? Like now we're like, ugh, coin. Ugh. I want some paper money, you know. I want some folding money, they used to say. When it comes to the sheep, he leaves the 99 and goes get the one, right? But when it comes to the younger brother, whom he gives the inheritance to, he looks for that one to come back. But when he comes back and the older brother is upset that he comes back and a party's being had, the father then leaves the party to go find the older brother. In other words, who was lost? The one who knew where to go to get things right? Or the one who was in the father's house yet didn't understand that he was there by birthright, not because he did anything special. That it was an inheritance that he was receiving, not something he had earned by being a good old boy. So the seeking in that parable is to prove who was really lost. The older brother in the house. The lost will come back. But to be lost in daddy's house. 
He leaves the party and says, you're the one I've got to seek. That's <laughs> why we miss lostness. Because we look at people with the worst sin issues and we think, wow, they're lost. You, Lord. See, the older brother was under the law. He thought by his actions he was in a position. I hear people say all the time nowadays, I was born that way. I say, well, good thing. Because Jesus said, you can be born again. But instead, we'd rather fight with them instead of saying, why don't you just be born again and have a new start and a new life with Jesus? An invitation into sonship and daughtership. An invitation into relationship. Okay, so we understand Jesus was crucified. We were crucified. He was raised from the dead. We are raised from the dead. And what happens after that? Jesus ascended to the right hand of God. Now watch what the Apostle Paul shows us in Ephesians chapter 2, coming to a close. And when you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Get this, by grace you have been saved, verse 6, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So you've not just been crucified with Christ. You've not just been resurrected in a newness of life with Christ, but you've ascended with Christ and you are seated with Him in heavenly places. What does that mean? You were born into a position of rest. And Jesus Christ has sat down once again and the heaven is His throne and the earth is His footstool and He becomes the meeting place of God. And if you will meet with Him and rest with Him and commune with Him, you will have the strength, the knowledge, the know-how to have third heaven insight and perspective to solve first heaven problems down here. What Satan wants you to do is to solve first heaven problems with second heaven intellect. In other words, operate in the demonic and emotional realm and let you be offended and upset and this person's this and they're the reason why I can't this or that. But what Satan wants you to not understand is that you've shot through the second heaven and you've went into the third heaven and now you're seated with Christ in heavenly places and you have a connection and a position with Him that nobody can stop or take away.
The ancient world thought that fate was fixed in the stars. The great sign of Jesus ascending to the third heaven and sitting down and us being seated there with Him is that we're now over fate. We are now seated above the demonic realm, the astrological realm that would try to tell us how we're supposed to be. Oh, I was born this, so that's why I'm hard-headed. No, you're hard-headed because you're in the flesh. It got nothing to do with a star. You just given that power. I want to tell you something. There's a greater reality above the stars called the right hand of God where we've been seated with Christ Jesus in heavenly places. So I dare you to just step into your position and just to begin to sit down into that place and begin to understand what God has done for you. And in that place of sitting, you'll begin to walk in new power. You'll begin to know who you are in God. And you'll begin to explore the mysteries of God that take us a lifetime to come into the understanding of Jesus sitting is the statement that he's not going anywhere and something happens here when we're seated with God in heavenly places suddenly in the New Testament reality you're the temple of God so Jesus was the temple of God. And then by faith, when you have relationship with Him, Apostle Paul says, you're the temple of God. So guess who's the meeting place with God now? Can you receive that? <laughs> I know that's it. You are the meeting place with God. That's why God says where two or three are gathered. I'm in the midst. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body and your spirit, for you are the temple of God. So if someone says, we need to plant more churches, I'll say, all right, well, get out of here and just go be the church. We have 200 and something churches right in here right now. 200 meeting places with God that need to step out into the potential that God has already worked and called you into, into the position of that and to be that thing for a lost and dying world. Ah, oh, thank you. Would you stand to your feet? God, we just thank you, Lord, for...